I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Now, of course, we meet here today in circumstances that are far from perfect. We must keep working to persuade all parts of the community that returning to the institutions is the best path. And we will do that. Leaders were prepared to put their leadership in peril for the good of their people. Hello and welcome to a Whitehall Sources special. I'm Callum MacDonald. This week, we want to step back from our usual cut and thrust of current political analysis based on the insider experiences of special advisers and those who work with cabinet ministers and leaders of the opposition, and reflect on what happened 25 years ago when the Good Friday Agreement was signed. This episode is a conversation with Tom Kelly, who was there, who worked in the build-up to the signing of the Good Friday Agreement with Tony Blair, Alistair Campbell, Jonathan Powell, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Mo Molem, and many, many others to get this across the finish line. That moment 25 years ago has gone on to define the history of Northern Ireland and the relationship with the UK as well. Over the last two weeks, you'll have seen and heard commemorative events, conferences to mark 25 years, and you'll have heard from the world leaders who were instrumental in that moment in history. Let's start by hearing from Tony Blair in 1998. A day like today, I mean, it's not a day for sort of sound bites, really. Um, we can leave those at home, but I feel that I feel the hand of history upon our shoulder. And there it is, the soundbite sneaked in that came to define that moment. Now let's hear from Tony Blair again, speaking on Wednesday, the nineteenth of April, twenty twenty-three. Tonight is not a night for soundbites, uh, <laughs> and. Fortunately, the hand of history is firmly on someone else's shoulder. Um, a few brief reflections before introducing my friend Bertie. First, the Good Friday Agreement only happened because leaders took risks. In politics, there are always a 
thousand reasons to stay put. And parties and governments, even countries, they have their cherished traditions and positions, narratives and history. And it's easier to stay with them because the status quo is a place of comfort rather than venture outside into the uncertain and unknown in pursuit of change. And tonight we do celebrate the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. But you know, every step of its making was debated, disputed, and often denounced. And tonight we mark it with honor, but I can tell you 25 years ago, this agreement only happened because leaders were prepared to put their leadership in peril for the good of their people. Good evening. A historic day at Stormont after two years of talks and after a generation of bloodshed and decades of division and acrimony, George Mitchell ushers in what the whole island hopes will be a new era of peace, an agreement that unites loyalist and Republican, unionist and nationalist leaders in a wide-ranging historical accord. The two Prime Ministers emerged just before six this evening to inaugurate the historic agreement they hope will usher in a new era for the island. There was praise for the Taoiseach and for the parties from Tony Blair, who paid tribute to all who had lost their lives in the conflict, suggesting that the nature of today's deal would change relationships in Northern Ireland forever. The principle of consent is absolute and is throughout the agreement. And the breakthrough is that that is now accepted by all, North and South. Also, those who believe in a united Ireland can make that case now by persuasion, not violence or threats. A view echoed by the Taoiseach. My ultimate political aspiration remains the coming together of all the people of Ireland, achieved peacefully and by consent. I value deeply the close relationship between the Irish government and the British government. Well, I look forward equally to a new era of friendship and reconciliation between unionists and nationalists in which each tradition can learn truly the value of the other. So then to Tom Kelly, who takes us right back to the weeks before the Good Friday Agreement was signed, discusses the moment itself and indeed the years afterwards. First, though, as is tradition for Whitehall sources, Tom outlines his CV for us. I was born, grew up live in Northern Ireland apart from uh, when I went to university for three years. But I've spent a lot of my career working in London as well as in Northern Ireland. I spent 16 years with the BBC as producer, editor, political editor here in Northern Ireland as well. And then just um, six weeks before the Good Friday Agreement, I went into the Northern Ireland office as director of communications and uh, live through that early baptism of not just the agreements, but the three years after the agreement, trying to get it to bed in and survive. And then was asked in 2001 to go to Downing Street as Tony Blair's civil service spokesman, um, succeeding one Alistair Campbell, mm. who you may have heard of. <laughs> 
Yes, he uh, notoriously so. Um, I uh, I'm struck actually by the fact that you were brought over six weeks before the signing. Was that because there was something in the, in the breeze that that felt like you know we need we need to bulk out the team here and we, we need somebody on board? Uh, Labour had come into power in the spring uh, of '97, and part of Labour coming to power saw a sort of a spring clean of government communications, if you like. Mm. So I was actually appointed in the uh, went through the recruitment process in the autumn of 97 but because of the slow way in which the civil service works it took until march beginning of march in 98 uh for me actually to get my feet under the table mm. so in some ways it was coincidental in other ways however i think it was part of the greater emphasis that labor put on communication as a way of not just if you like powering up government policy, but enabling government policy by creating a momentum behind events, by creating a sense of a new start. Mm, that's really interesting. And when you joined, was there optimism? Was there positivity about the, the Good Friday Agreement? What was the sort of atmosphere that you that you went into? I took up my job on the 3rd of March, 1998, on that day, um, two men, Philip Allen, Allen, Damien Trainer, were murdered in a small village in County Down called Points Pass. One happened to be a Catholic, one happened to be a Protestant. They were killed by a loyalist paramilitary group, the LVF. And in some ways, that summarised, I think, the state of where we were because while slowly talks, political talks, have been grinding on for two years, the backdrop remained of a society which was still on a daily basis disfigured by violence. And what I always am struck by was a week before um, the Good Friday Agreement talks began, a poll said that all only 17% of the Northern Ireland public thought they would succeed in the time frame. 83% thought they would fail. And that was partly because of that backdrop of violence, but also because we had had a quarter of a century of political failure since the previous attempt to get a comprehensive peace deal, the Sunning Deal Agreement, had been allowed to be overthrown mm. by a combination of the IRA campaign, but also Ian Paisley's uh, loyalist campaign as well. So we had that failure, if you like, internalised in ourselves, and it was very, very difficult to break that psychological logjam. Mm -hmm. This might sound like a ridiculous question, but I wonder to what extent the Good Friday Agreement defined your role in those early days versus... I suppose my other thought on that is how you defined the comms around the Good Friday Agreement, if you see what I mean. Um, how how was it how was it led and how was it strategized in the build up to the signing? I think, look, at, a, at a systems level, one of the first tasks that I was asked to do was to um, write a week within uh, of my arrival 
um, a comms plan in case there would be an agreement. Mm. Now, in typical Northern Ireland fashion, uh, my permanent secretary said, be as frank as you want to be. So I was, and he promised me that it would only go to a few people. And he kept his word. It went to a few people in the Lord Land Office. It went to a few people in Down Street. It went to a few people in the Lord Land Civil Service. It went to a few people in the RUC. It went to a few people in the Army. And not surprisingly, it ended up as the lead item on uh, the 9 o'clock news that night, uh, as it then was. Um, I still have the cartoon on my walls here at home with um, a split screen of the Carson statue at Stallman with one side Carson denouncing the government's attempt to manipulate public opinion, and the other side praising those loyal civil servants who were prepared to leak anything the government was going to do. So that was, if you like, the, the, the system's um, level. Yeah. On a personal level, um, I, as an 18-year-old, had seen the Ulster Workers' Council strike in 1974 bring down that Sunningdale Agreement, bring down that attempt by the majority of people in Northern Ireland to find a way forward through Parshane. Um, both at the time of the agreement and for the nine years I worked on the peace process in Northern Ireland and later in Downing Street, I was absolutely determined that were we to get an agreement, were that to be backed as it was in a referendum by 71%, that this time those in the unionist community who opposed it would not be able to bring it down, mm -hmm. that there wouldn't be what was in effect a coup again against democracy in Northern Ireland. Wow. The stakes were so high, and again, that sounds so obvious to say, but I just wonder if you've ever considered the hypothetical of if the Good Friday Agreement hadn't been signed, ever, and and what would have followed? I think what would have continued would have been an attritional war. Mm. And... That might have been, you know, the technical, I hate it, but the technical military term that is sometimes used about the kind of conflict that uh, Northern Ireland had become. It's a low-intensity war. The reality is it was a civil, civil war which didn't involve every single person in Northern Ireland but did impinge on most people's lives, and that would have continued. And, you know... Let us not forget, we uh, had the agreements uh, in April. We then had the overwhelming endorsement of it in May. We then faced into the marching season and a confrontation, and there's no other word for it, between the loyalist rejectionist wing um, and the pro-agreement um, government uh, at Drum Cree where orange men wanted to march through a Catholic area and were stopped by the police and we had a standoff there. So that's one side of it. Mm. On the other side, we then had in August of the same year um, the worst atrocity in the Troubles at Ulma carried out by dissident Republicans. So to answer your question, I think it was all too obvious what would have happened if there hadn't been an agreement. Mm. It would have been more of the horror that had disfigured this place for 30 years. Yeah. Take us to the moment where you got wind that this thing was was reaching the finishing line and, and was, was at the finishing line and, and what that was like. When did that happen? 
in the early hours of <clears throat> Good Friday, uh, in the early hours of Good Friday, whenever gradually the way the talks worked was a, a process of going between the different rooms where the different groups were. Mm. And you began to get a sense of not just weariness because you were on your feet for 36 hours, but of gathering momentum. But of course, you know, to use the Senator George Mitchell phrase, nothing was agreed until everything was agreed. So you knew right until the very end that um, it was possible that it was going to fall over. And I, you know, I was, as I said, relatively new in the job, so I, I don't claim to have played any big part in negotiations. But I was involved in briefing the press, and sometimes we were in our briefing ahead of where the reality was. But as we got nearer to the moment of agreement, um, we said less than we knew. Mm. And slowly, that sense of it's actually going to happen dawned. And there came a moment whenever we, we had written a, a draft of what if it all collapsed statement. And we began to think about, well, what if it succeeds? And there was a decision point because um, the Prime Minister and his party wanted to get off as quickly as possible because they were knackered after a year in government, no holidays, and they wanted to get off for a break. But, um, I has argued, we had to have an event to mark this, so we had to have a plenary session. And for that to make any impact, we needed to have pictures of it. Mm. And that meant getting the broadcasting cables into the building. And that was really the moment at which that decision to say to the broadcasters, right, what would you do if we had an event and you needed to get your cables in? How long would it take? That was the moment at which I knew game on. Wow. Gosh. It's, I, I, in that moment then, so it's about, I mean, there's logistical things, there's getting cables run, but for you, given your sort of personal and professional fusion at this point, there must have been a real sense of purpose and, and probably excitement, am I right in saying, Tom? Elation. Yeah. Uh, was one factor. Exhaustion was another factor, but also apprehension because I knew if this thing succeeded, I was going to have to run the government side of the referendum campaign in Northern Ireland. And I knew, as it turned out to be actually right, that that was going to be far from straightforward and that the referendum campaign was just the first step in a whole series of steps that would have to be taken to implement the agreement if we were going to avoid the fate of Sunningdale, if this time it was actually going to last. And I, you know, somebody asked me the other day, you know, did, did you not go home and celebrate? And to some extent, yes. But I also went home and started thinking, right, what next? Mm. And that mental process of thinking what next actually never left me for the next nine years. Wow. 
who who were you working with? How did how did it work in terms of shaping the messaging around this? Was the prime minister there? Was it civil servants? Who, permanent sector? Who who was in the rooms when these discussions were being had? Well, obviously, uh, throughout the process, the people I worked most closely with were the secretary of state, who was Mo Molum, yeah, uh, who played a vital role in lubricating, if you like. The, the social dynamics that were necessary to, for it to happen. Mm. Uh, so the Secretary of State, the Prime Minister, uh, Jonathan Powell, and Alistair Campbell. And you know, what was absolutely vital was that nobody would be able to get a slither of difference between um, what we in the Northern Ireland office said and what Number 10 was saying. And again, that was a recurring theme uh, in my remaining time at the Northern Ireland office, but then also whenever I went to number 10 to make sure in the six years I was in number 10 that that also happened. Because one slight nuance of difference between London and Belfast would be exploited by those who are opposed to the agreement. There's no doubt about that. Mm. It strikes me, and perhaps this is always the case retrospectively, but with Mo Molan particularly, who I've learned a bit about and you can tell us more about just now, it strikes me that these were the right characters for this moment in history, and I include you in that, that these people were the combination that were were required at that time. It's funny how I've often thought that we were actually very, very lucky in having the right Secretary of State at the right time in Northern Ireland. And the relationship between Number 10 and the Secretary of State wasn't always easy because they were looking at the issues from different ends of the telescope. But if Mo had, I say this quite openly, Mo was, in my view, the best instinctive politician that I ever worked with because she got people in a way that others struggle to. She was, she was so fast in reading people. Uh, but you needed the more legalistic, the more eye-in-the-detail precision of a Tony Blair as well as his, as his own charisma. Uh, we then had Peter Mandelson, and if Mo lent to the nationalist green side, Peter lent more to the unionist side. And at a time whenever... We were carrying through a fundamental reform of the police service in Northern Ireland, going from the RUC to the PSNI. That was absolutely vital. So getting that combination of secretary of state and the right relationship with number 10 was vital. Um, at times for me, because I tend to get stuck in the middle, it was uncomfortable. <laughs> mm. But it was uncomfortable for the right reasons rather than the wrong reasons. Mm. Were there arguments? Was it always collegiate? Uh, there were arguments uh, because, as I say, they were looking at it from different ends of the telescope. Yeah, they were. You know, the Secretary of State always looked at it in terms of what was immediately in front of them in Northern Ireland, what they had to deal with in Northern Ireland, whereas Number Ten uh, had to deal with the big picture, the relationship with the Irish government, etc., etc. And at times, people felt 
put out and miffed that they weren't getting the attention that maybe thought they should or their expertise wasn't being respected in some ways. But I think that was inevitable. Underneath it all, however, and this is the vital point, Mm -hmm. was not only a shared respect for each other, but a shared sense of purpose. And that shared sense of purpose survived during the nine years I worked on it. Whether it was Peter Hain, whether it was Paul Murphy, uh, they all had that same sense of purpose of not just keeping the agreement alive, but keeping the hope that the agreement had created alive. Mm. It is fascinating. Uh, and Mo Molum is, is a character, and I, and I don't think we can spend too long talking about Mo Molum because of her significance that you've outlined a bit of for us. One of the striking things um, that has stuck with me in the last couple of weeks, she was enduring cancer treatment at, at the point of sort of culmination and working on this thing. And she usually hid that. Mm. Um, she usually she didn't like to talk about it. Uh, it wasn't something that I discussed with her in any detail, and that was partly because I didn't want to intrude, but partly also I knew that she didn't really want me to ask her about mm. it mm. because for her, immersing herself in the task was all-encompassing. Uh, and she put her heart and soul into it. It's as simple as that. And that was what was required. That's the thing. So what you're saying about the combination of people, the devotion to getting this over the line, and I suppose then completing it. But then as, as you were saying, Tom, it's about what comes next. Uh, what do you remember about the signing itself and then that feeling of, right, the, the work in some ways has only just begun? <sighs> Well, the sign, the sign itself was, you know, to some extent, um, once you get to the point of decision that there's going to be an agreement, mm. then you're into almost automatic mode mm. because there are certain things you have to do, doorsteps you have to do, press conferences you have to do, and that carries itself. It's the next week where there's a logistical issue, which is we've got to decide what's the cover of the agreement look like, uh, what picture are we going to use, uh, what does it say, uh, how do we get it out to every house in Northern Ireland, which we had committed to doing, uh, all those sort of technical issues. There's also, however, another issue, which is how big a part does the government play in arguing the case, or do we leave it to local parties? Um, I had a somewhat surprising, uh, I didn't anticipate this, discussion about whether it was appropriate as a civil servant for me to openly campaign for the agreement. Um, You can imagine my frustration levels at even having that discussion. Uh, But uh, all those things had to be gone through. And then we got into the interrelationships with civic society who ran events like you know putting a big yes banner down the front door of the Europa Hotel in Belfast, also ran the Human Trimble U2 concert and, and so on. And that created moon music, which was, in my view, vital in getting not so much changing people's minds, but motivating uh, turnout. And turnout was going to be important. But you do did reach the stage in the referendum where you had to deal with substance. And the substance for unionism 
came down to did they really believe that the violence was over for good and the IRA had given up its campaign for good. And that was deeply affected by um, the decision in both Belfast and Dublin, it had to be said, mm. to release IRA prisoners to go to Sinn Féin Ardesh, uh to argue the case for the agreement. The images of that disturb unionist opinion deeply. How fascinating. And what were the what were the sort of immediate ramifications of, of a moment like that? Well, we, we were doing private polling mm. and we saw in the aftermath of the agreement, there was a sort of euphoric bounce in the year. At one stage, we might have got if if the poll, if the referendum had been held immediately after the agreement, we probably could have got an eighty percent approval rating. Mm. By ten days before the referendum, we were down to fifty six percent, and we were losing in the unionist community, and that was because uh, the issue of prison releases was in itself very difficult. The decision to let out everyone after two years was very, very unpopular uh, in the unionist community. But the images of the prisoners at the Ardesh, the triumphant reception that they were given, reinforced the fear that actually all this was a charade and that all we were letting the prisoners out and that they would then... Uh, resume the campaign at a point. They would use the space to rebuild the IRA and relaunch the campaign. And that was a real tangible fear. Now, on the other side, uh, Sinn Féin would argue that they would needed the prisoners out because they needed to, to, to get support for their position, not only to support the agreement, but to reverse the historic ban on entering, as they would see it, a petitionist assembly. So you could see it from their point of view. But the effect in unionist opinion was really, really difficult. So about 10 days beforehand, Jonathan, the referendum date, uh, Jonathan, Paul and I put our heads together and decided that in the run-up to the referendum, we were going to get the Prime Minister back, we were going to get Bertie Hearn as the Irish Taoiseach back, up back, and that we were going to mount a mini referendum campaign within the overall campaign and that's what we did wow what foresight and vision to do that because it must have felt at times like it could this thing could slip away was there again was there a moment though where it felt like you'd tipped the balance and it was all you know it was going going to pass it was going to happen um you know uh, you say foresight i would say fear (sighs) Uh, that 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 set that sense of losing it Mm. was tangible we we decided on an old trick which was we got the prime minister over and we sort of reinvented the new labor pledge card (laughs) to make it applicable to all that and we put five pledges um one was on uh, consent being necessary uh, of the majority before Irish unification. So that was just one issue. The second was the commitment to a power-sharing assembly. Mm. That addressed another issue. The third was uh, justice 
and fairness at the heart of all policy. And then the two issues which really were of concern to the unionist community. One was that any party that threatened violence or used violence would be uh, ejected from government. And the, fa the final one was that prisoners would only be released if they gave up violence. And by addressing the substantive fears of unionists, we got a 20% swing back towards the agreement amongst unionists in that last week. Now, if it had gone the other way, and we had ended up with 56%, not a majority unionist community, rather than the 71% we got and a majority unionist community, it would have been even more difficult to keep the agreement alive and well. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In terms of how the implementation of it, do you feel like, here we are 25 years on, do you feel like the Good Friday Agreement is still wholly fit for purpose? Um, I feel it's a job half done. Mm. And, and the, the way I think of it is, in terms of the peace process, it succeeded. Violence, more or less, gone. Uh, IRA weapons decommissioned. The security apparatus, was, which was all too obvious in Northern Ireland for 30 years, gone. Mm. Fairness and equality is part of the way we do business in Northern Ireland, just as a matter of fact. The police service was reformed. So in terms of those um, fundamentals of a peace process, we've achieved that. In terms of a stable, um, holistic government capable of making big decisions, uh, that's only happened sporadically. And that's what the focus and the attention has to be on now. Now, I agree with those who say that, you know, to try and reform the agreement now, to get rid of the vetoes on all sides, uh, that's a secondary priority compared to actually getting the executive fund running because we need an executive fund running our public finances are on a terrible mess and public services will be hit if we don't get the executive up and running now but we do need to face up to two questions what happens if the dup won't go back in a short uh, time scale and how do we deal with the fact that northern ireland has changed instead of two communities we have three communities, and the Good Friday structures 
don't reflect that. Is it, is, with that in mind, is it time for some sort of formal re-evaluation of those aspects that you that you highlight? Do we need something almost similar to the process around the Good Friday Agreement where parties sit down and work out what it looks like for the next 25 years? I think we do, but I think the immediate priority is getting the institutions back up and running. Mm. I think the reality is local elections here on the 18th of May. They will then be getting towards the marching season when nothing happens in Northern Ireland. And I think it will be September before they get the executive up running. I think that will take time to bed in. So I don't actually see much in terms of an overall review process uh, being set up before uh, the election, the general election. However, I think government, whether it's Conservatives or Labour and Dublin and now the EU, need to get their thinking caps on in terms of thinking what sort of changes would you make to make it better? And I also include that, obviously, the parties here in Northern Ireland themselves, with an eye to, once we get through the general election, actually making some big decisions about whether we need change and how that change work and what happens if the Northern Ireland parties can't agree amongst themselves what changes are needed. I, one of the benefits, I think, of the agreement of 25 events that we have seen uh, over the last week or so is that I think it has normalised the idea that the agreement isn't perfect in every way and doesn't reflect Northern Ireland as it is today. And therefore, I think there's more appetite now for that kind of fundamental discussion at the same time as a recognition that now is not the moment, but the moment will come. Mm. Would you be involved again, Tom? Do you think you could? Do you think you could bear a similar process again? Um, I always stand ready to give advice, but the days whenever I, I want to go thirty six hours without sleep <laughs> are over. Yes, I think that's fair. You've more than done your bit. Uh, <laughs> with that in mind, I mean, you must look back on that time with a gr- with a great and deserved sense of pride. Because it, it does feel like, you know, as Tony Blair said in, in his own speech this week, um, in, in one of the sort of commemoration events or, or, or events to mark the anniversary, uh, tonight is not a night for sound bites. Um, fortunately, the hand of history is firmly on someone else's shoulder, is, is what he had to say. Uh, also, the Good Friday Agreement only happened because leaders put their leadership in peril for the good of their people. And I suppose that that is the sense of service and duty that was that has rung through these 25 years? Yes, that is what has run through these 25 years, is people putting Northern Ireland first at the right moment. And I do include Prime Minister in that, and I do think a bit of that has rubbed off on Rishi Sunak. You know, my experience of leaders coming from London is that some just don't get it and never get it. But some, once it gets into their system, it stays in their system. Uh, And people like Julian Smith, the former Secretary of State, 
or like that. Peter Hain, I think, the former head of state, is like that. Mm. And that's a good thing. Um, in terms of, I look back with a sense of satisfaction, but also dissatisfaction. Satisfaction that the past 25 years has been nowhere like the, the previous 25 years that I lived through. Uh, but dissatisfaction in that I know we could be so much further on and it is frustrating that we're not further on. But that frustration, I think, should drive people on to make the agreement fulfil its potential as a whole. And in that sense, maybe that's not a bad thing. That's really interesting. That's a really interesting thought, and interesting that you you pick out Rishi Sunak because what what we were saying before about the right collaboration of people and the right combination of people that is key. And so perhaps within what you're saying, there is the acknowledgement that the people need to be right. So yes, Stormont needs to be back up and running, but then we need to identify a, a moment when the people are the the correct people to be able to to see this next phase through. And I think, I think at the moment, I think Rishi Sunak has done very well. But let's be clear, the Windsor frame, framework, I think, is as good as it's going to get. Uh, there may be what I would call sensible suggestions about how pragmatically uh, the protocol could be improved a bit without a major negotiation with the EU. So he's done that bit. We haven't got devolution back yet. And... That is the next test. Can he get devolution back? And if he doesn't, what does he do then? Because I'm very clear in my mind, Northern Ireland cannot afford to sit without an executive for 18 months until a general election. Uh, Our public finances just won't allow it. So we need to do something. If we get the executive from running, then it should be given the time and space to get its feet under the table again and deal with that. And the period up to a general election is a good enough period for that. But if it doesn't, then I think he may need to move sooner than he might want to. How have you felt these last couple of weeks, Tom, seeing the events, seeing the world leaders indeed flying in to mark the 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement. How, is, how has all of this been for you this last couple of weeks? Um, before it all began, I gave myself a very, very strict talking to to say that I wasn't going to get nostalgic <laughs> uh, about it because uh, you know, one of our buying sins in Northern Ireland is a, is a degree of sentimentality. Um, and I, I was slightly afraid that the events would be bathed in nostalgia and old anecdotes, et cetera, et cetera. And there's been an element of that, let's be honest. But I also think it has given a platform to think about the challenges now and how you deal with a hybrid society, which is part British, part Irish, part Northern Irish, uh, and how you deal with that going forward. And I have seen in one or two remarks people beginning to think in a more reflective way about those questions. And that's a good thing, and that's satisfying. 
But at the same time, there's still the itch to, right, let's get, actually get it. Let's stop talking and let's start doing. And that frustration is still there. I understand completely. It is really fascinating to speak to you, Tom, and it's so amazing to hear about the people and your involvement and the work that was done to, to see this thing through um, and to be you know so close to this moment in history by speaking to you today. So thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time. No problem. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. <laughs> 